Today we're in uh, 2 Thessalonians, and we'll be reading chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always thank you. We, also, we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, amongst God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to, to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. You know, there's nothing like a little eternal destruction on baby dedication Sunday. It's fantastic. Um, and who's, been with, like, who's been with us, you know, kind of in this uh, first and second Thessalonians study most of the time? You guys kind of been in it, city group, studying through it. It's been good. Uh, I love it. You know, it's one of those things, you know, you, you wonder, like, we had all, we had, it was packed in here like crazy. What people were lined up along the walls. We didn't have enough seats. People were in the back and babies everywhere. Um, and then to open up the Bible and just say, this is where we are. Y'all are all visiting and jumping in, but we're going we're gonna to dive in and talk about hell uh, after we dedicate all your children. Um, and it was just great. I, mean, I, love, I love this about the Bible, though. It's, it, it doesn't allow us, if we're, if we're true to Scripture and we, we're coming to the Word of God and saying, God, what are you saying to me? If, if we're trying to project uh, which in theological terms, or if you're studying in seminary, ends of Jesus, we're trying to take you know, our thoughts and the things that, that we're thinking we should say and then see how we can utilize and leverage the word of God to make our point, which is ends of Jesus, then we've, you see where there's a problem there. But exegesis is where we're, we're, we're looking at scripture and looking at this collection of verses and allowing God to speak to us and the word of God to ultimately be the filter uh, and that's why we do series like these where we go through books of the Bible and we really don't have so much of a series title. And we have Keep Calm, Carry On because that really is a tone that the Apostle Paul is setting with these people as they persevere in their faith. He's like, you have a firm foundation. You have something transcendent that you're standing on that allows you to be calm in the face of tragedy, that allows you to be calm in the face of difficult times and trouble. And specifically in this passage, He's like, and you don't have to worry about 
you know, having a vengeful heart because God is a just judge. And he's going to, everything that you're, you're wanting to do to that guy that's been mean to you or persecuted you or uh, abused one of your children or d- done something awful to you, um, God's on your side and God's in it with you. And that's kind of the, the essence of, you know, where this passage sits. And I want to kind of dive right in, in, in verse five, and we're going to land, like Dave kind of gave a precursor to where we're going. We're going to talk about hell. Um, and it, it's something that you really, to understand the doctrine of hell, it's spoken about so much in scripture, but we often kind of bounce around it or find, you know, creative ways to talk about it. But it's mentioned a lot in scripture and to understand the doctrine of hell is very important, uh, to understand some, some of the things that are central to the, to our faith as followers of Jesus and to be Christians. You know, I think sometimes we're like, can we just eject this doctrine of hell out of the whole deal because it's not fun to talk about. You know, it's not something you, on your Friday night dinner party you want to bring up. You know, when somebody says, oh, you go to church. Yes, and if you don't, then hell. You know, uh, it's, it's just one, it's not the most popular thing to, to, to have a conversation about. But it's where you, you, you can't get past this passage and not all of a sudden kind of bounce out of it and say, okay, we got to deal with this. We got to talk about it because the Apostle Paul is using it as a reassurance. It's interesting. He's not going, hey, be scared about hell. He's like, you guys are all fine. But guess what? If you're wondering if there's going to be justice for the wicked, hell, right? Everlasting judgment, everlasting torment and separation from God. That's what those people are going to get that don't follow God and that are persecuting you. He says in verse five, he says, you've been, you've been persevering. We're celebrating you because we, we hear that you're doing an amazing job. And in this second letter to the Thessalonians, he's answering some more questions. He's found out some more things that they were confused about. One of them was, what's going to happen? Like, how does justice get handed out? Because we've been persecuted. Like, they had questions about the end times uh, in chapter 1, and they have more that are going to be answered in this second letter. The Apostle Paul's, again, months later, coming back on the heels, hearing from Timothy, who was checking on this church that they planted, and hearing that they are, they're doing great, they're persevering, but they're wondering, when's Jesus coming back? Like, is he coming back tomorrow? Can I quit my job? You know, what, what's that? That's a, that was a serious question that he'll address in chapter two. Can I quit my job? I love that people are people. They're like, if Jesus comes back tomorrow, do I got to go back to work? Um, they really ask that question. Uh, and the apostle Paul says, no, you go to work. We don't know the day or the hour. He really, he's clear with them. He's like, we, we just don't know. Um, but they're also wondering, like, what's going to happen to the people that have abused, abused, abused us as, as Christians? People that have harmed our families. You know, there's, there's a heart of a, a need for justice. And the Apostle Paul wants to reassure them that, hey, they're going to get theirs and he will pay back trouble. And that's what he says here. He says, all of this is evidence. Your faith, your perseverance, um, the fact that you are not wavering, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He wants, he wants them to be very clear. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Cross-reference there. You know that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul would say, vengeance is mine. He would say, you need to, you need to remember that God, God is going to take vengeance. He says that to the church in Rome, that you don't need to step in. We are going to be people of kindness. We are going to be people that turn the other cheek. 
but God will be the God of justice because he can be just. He will pay back those uh, who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Because the Apostle Paul knew persecution just about as good as anybody. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. I love the imagery you know, that you get there. It's, it really it, it allows us to depart instantaneously away from like blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Jesus that's petting a stuffed lamb, right? Because he's coming back like a lion, like blazing fire. He's coming back with justice and wrath for those that have harmed us. He will set things right. He goes on and he says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the word obey is used here because obedience, um, we even said this in our, our child dedication, like obedience is not what wins your salvation. Like your children will not be depending on their obedience for their salvation. Obviously, we want our kids to obey. But that won't be the foundation of their faith. It, it, will be, it will be the grace that's extended. It will be the fact that the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection is what annihilates our sin, what takes care of our sins past, present, and future, what makes us right before God. He who knew no sin, right? He took on sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul's talking to the church at Corinth about the same thing. But he uses this term, obey the gospel here. He goes, those who do not obey the gospel, this is, they're, they're going to be in trouble. The people that don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, you did. So you're all good. But those that, that don't, you know, it's you know, everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord for you. So that term obedience or obey the gospel there is adherence to the gospel or the embracing of salvation by faith. We see it in 2 Peter. We see it in Romans. It's that same terminology is used multiple times. Sometimes we stumble over that. Like, I thought obedience has nothing really to do with our salvation. We can't obey and please God into salvation. That's absolutely true. God is pleased with us because he's pleased with Jesus. And by faith, we put our faith in his death, his burial, his resurrection, our knowing that we can't do it on our own. That is the embracing and the adherence to the gospel. That's the obedience of the gospel, just to make that clear. Now, here we get to the, uh, the place that, that we want to be. You know, our golf tournament is fairway to heaven. And uh, in verse 9 displays the highway to hell. So they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Now there's two things here when we're, as we dive into this discussion about hell, I want to be clear because the apostle Paul in one sentence gives you a very good picture actually of what hell is. One, it's everlasting. It's everlasting destruction. And the idea is you're shut out from the presence of the Lord, which that's, that's as bad as it gets for people that were created to be with Jesus. Colossians literally says you were created by and for Jesus and to be separated finally and eternally from him is really the essence of, of hell. And so even in having, the, having this discussion, you know, I was thinking about like when, when you get into like, it's one, it's, it's something that gets a, a, like we avoid as pastors and preachers, hell and money. We don't talk about it much. 
It's interesting. Jesus talked about two things more than any other thing. Hell and money. And we, it's funny. We avoid it as pastors and preachers uh, many, many times. It's just because it's uncomfortable. But that's what we are going to dive into today. But I, you know, I think one of the reasons that we do is because it, 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 the, the doctrine of hell was leveraged, I think, over-leveraged in the 70s and 80s maybe um, to, to, to make people like, become Christians. I mean, anybody grow up in that era? Like with like tribulation house, like rapture house, you know, where you go in there and they, they kind of pretend, you know, that you've experienced the rapture and you walk through the door. They do it around Halloween, you know, around, or not Halloween. Goodness gracious, not to say it was trunk or treat. You know, you're not going to do any Halloween. Woo. So you're gonna, and, and they had these, these crazy tribulation houses. Anybody? Who, was, who did like one of those little rapture? Yeah, you grew up on the west side. I know. Um, you go in those things and, and it's like, you know, it's the, the picture of, you know, Jesus returned and the good people that, you know, accepted Jesus and did the altar call, they, they just disappeared. That's why the planes wrecked because the pilot was a Christian and he's up in heaven and all the people are like, Aah! bloody walking through, you know, babies screaming, where's my mommy? She's in heaven. You're not. Um, and it's, you know, and then they preach the gospel to you. And you're like, uh, but, you know, uh, we did something called scare mare, which was awesome. I loved it. Um, it was like on property, like they would drive you out on the yellow dog, to school bus. You know, I'd go to my, my school, they'd pick you up and you were stoked. You'd always brought a girl that you kind of liked with you. Um, because you know, you would get on this property and it was dark. And then my, my father-in-law worked at the scare mare site. He's a, a Marine. Um, and it's kind of scary. He's the nicest. If you ever meet him and he's here, you see him, you're, you're like, he is a nice man. He's a Marine and he's scary, I promise. You date his daughter in high school, um, he's definitely scary. But anyway, he would, he would submerge himself in a swamp. This bridge you would walk over, literally with a Jason mask on. <laughs> At night. He didn't care. Like, y'all, I mean, I wouldn't do that because I'm scared. Marine. He's un- and he would come out with a legit chainsaw. <laughs> and scare you to death. Um, and then the girl you were with would be like, oh my gosh. And you'd be like, yeah. You'd be sweet. And then by the, you get to the end of it and there'd be all these, these hay bales that are there. You'd sit on like your, your little pews, you know, and there'd be a guy. We'd do like a 12 to 15 minute uh, sermon on burning in hell. And you would be like, I, I got saved about seven times at Scaremare. It was fantastic. You know, you do. You're like, I'll sign whatever you want, man. I don't want none of that. But, but we, I, think, we, I think a lot of us understand, like it got overplayed. I think that's one of the reasons that there's some pushback in our culture and having conversations about the doctrine of hell. But, but without it, we're, we're going to miss some essential pieces of our faith in Christianity. I mean, Aaron said it after our first gathering. He's like, you know what? We, what, what are we being saved from? If salvation is, is this, the centerpiece of what we're talking about, you have to have it. I think it's the unspoken thing. Like that we don't really, when, we're, when, we, when we worship and we're excited about our faith, I think part of that is the gratitude that the justice that, that we deserve is not coming our way, not because of anything that we did, but because of what Jesus has done. So I want to unpack a little bit um, just of what we believe about hell. And again, you're not going to have everything cleared up. For those of you that are city group leaders, thank you very much for you're going to be the ones clearing up all of the things I miss on hell today. Um, but I want to answer 
some questions um, concerning hell, but it's not an easy doctrine. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this. I love it. He says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. So it's not one that, that you know, everybody wants to have discussions about. It's uncomfortable because it feels like this idea of everlasting torment or, or eternal destruction and separation from the very life that we were created for, which is a life with God, seems harsh. It seems like too much. It brings into question, you know, does everybody deserve that that doesn't accept Jesus, doesn't do it our way as Christians? And I think that's where we get into that discomfort. So I want to answer three questions concerning hell. Um, uh, the first one is, what is hell? Right? I mean, that's a, a valid one. Um, why is hell important to our faith? And how can God be loving and send people to hell? Um, I sent my wife these questions. She's like, wow, Derek, you know, I go out of town and you're really going to tackle one, aren't you? You know? And she was worried. She's like, I know you want to do creative sermon titles. And, I, and I'm like, I won't. I mean, what the hell? And she was like, see, this is what happens when I go out of town. Um, but I think addressing some of these, again, I won't, like when you're going to, we're going to get around some of this and there's going to be, you're going to be like, I'm still not ready to talk to my friend that, you know, that has been asking questions about, you know, if you brought a friend today, you're welcome. Um, but I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, our hope today, and even having this discussion is that if you're, if you're visiting with us today, and I said this in our first, we had tons of people, job dedications. I love it. Talking about hell. Um, I, the idea is exactly what Dave said, that people would understand and know that Jesus, he is relentlessly pursuing you today. Like if you don't know him, he is here. You're here because God is that good. That he, he, he loves you that much that he wants, wants you to know him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. And you have so much hope today. We can't get caught up in thinking about you know, what's down the road or when it all comes down. We want to look about, there should be an urgency and there's a tone to today that has some urgency to it. But more than anything, if, if, if there's anything that I would want to communicate to you is that Jesus loves you, that he, he is, he's pursuing you, that he wants your heart, that he's, his desire is that you would know him and be in relationship with him. So as we dig in and answer these questions, that really is, um, what I want to be very clear. So first is, what is hell? And there's a few elements. I think I, I might have missed clarifying some of these in uh, our first gathering, and I'll, do it. I'll make sure I do that here. Um, hell is a place, this is from the Gospel Coalition, and, I, and again, this will sound and feel harsh because I'm trying to boil it down into one statement, but we're going to break it down a little bit. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, which is actually that statement right there, eternal conscious torment, is a a line of thinking or a line of theology which um, most evangelical Christians believe, like core Christian doctrine, eternal um, conscious torment. It just sounds so bad coming out, but it's exactly what it is. It's like it's eternal. There's an awareness because we're all eternal beings. We all have a soul, um, and that there, it's it's bad. The, the The idea of not being with being separated from God is eternal destruction. So it's eternal conscious torment. There's another idea in that um, theologically that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian, but it's not prescribed by most people that um, are you know, in our 
kind of strain of faith, which is called annihilationism, uh, which would be that people do experience uh, a separation from God. They, they do experience the pain of going to an actual place called hell, but eventually that they will be annihilated, that the, this fire that Jesus talks about in Gehenna, this eternal fire, this fire that never is quenched, the, the worm that never dies, that eventually that it annihilates who the individual is and they're no more. Um, and there's some pretty solid theologians that, that believe in annihilationism. John Stott would be one of them, um, but that is not super common um, in our strain of faith. It's more of the eternal conscious torment, meaning you, you'll be a, there's an awareness of the soul that will last forever. So when we look at that, it says, hell involves final separation from God's mercy. So that's a key element of what hell is, is separation from God, separation from his mercy, and from God's people, from um, the, the, the other Christians and the other believers. Unending experience of divine judgment and just retribution for sin. So hell's specific purpose um, is um, the deserving um, death of walking away from who God is and rebelling against God. Now, I wanted to give a, a side note when we're thinking about what is hell, uh, because a lot of people ask questions about like the, the hot part, you know, like hell is hot, right? And that's the, the way that it's described in scripture. You have a lot of these things that you're wondering as you read them, the idea about the worm never dying, about the, the flame that's never quenched, um, the, the lake of fire. Are these metaphors? Are, are these actual? Is this actual? Well, I want to give you kind of the, the grounds in which, you know, we as Christians see hell, right? Because I think that's the conversation. It's like, is it really, is, is hell really eternal fire? What is it? What is it? We don't, all we have is the description of this thing that none of us have experienced at this juncture. So, so the word of God is trying to get on a level with us. But this is what Tim Keller says. And again, I'm reading his words, smart theologian and has studied um, hell a lot. He's one of those people that's done a lot of those roundtable discussions in universities. And they ask, that's always a question that's asked. What's the nature of hell? Um, can a loving God send people to hell? And those type of questions. But Concerning hell and fire, he says, virtually all commentators and theologians believe that biblical images of fire and outer darkness are metaphorical. Since souls are in hell right now, because people have died, without bodies, how could the fire be literal and physical fire? Even Jonathan Edwards, and Jonathan Edwards is a stalwart theologian, he pointed out that the biblical language for hell was symbolic. But he added, now listen to this. This is so important when you hear the word metaphor because there's so many people that think the Bible is just full of metaphors, that the stories that we read are metaphors. There's a difference in trying to get to a level of explaining something and something being a fairy tale. A metaphor is, a, is trying to make sure in our humanness we understand something that we haven't experienced yet on planet Earth, that no other human being has experienced. And that's what... Jonathan Edwards is talking about. So he says, biblical language for hell was symbolic, but he adds, Jonathan Edwards does, when metaphors, listen, when metaphors are used in scripture about spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. What Jonathan Edwards continues to say is like, look, we got to use the best, the, 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 the things that humans understand. We understand fire. 
We understand heat. We understand the concept of what if a flame lasted forever. So what the Word of God is doing to get on our level in humanness, because he's way smarter and understands things that we don't, is he's using things that say, okay, if you're wondering if this judgment is going to be bad, the answer is yes. Right? That's the thing that you've got to walk away with when, it's, when, it's, when we're talking about hell. Now, do I necessarily subscribe to what Tim Keller says, that all commentators and theologians believe that biblical images of fire and outer, outer darkness are metaphorical? No. I, I think that I've read enough commentary where people are like, yeah, hell's, the, we see the, the imagery in Scripture. We, there's a good chance that hell's hot. <laughs> I mean, that's just you know, what you see. Charles Spurgeon. Well, a theologian I respect greatly. You know, uh, it was you know, it was a preacher in the Industrial Revolution, um, and he would say, "Not metaphorical. It's the real deal." But that's not the important. The important piece is what Jonathan Edwards says. Like, look, the the representation that we see in Scripture is to get in our mind the 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 nature of what this type of judgment means. The nature of this, the reasons that Jesus was speaking about hell, it was about the separation of man and God that started with the Garden of Eden. Like the representation of hell started with Adam and Eve being booted out of the Garden of Eden and two fiery angels on the east end of the Garden of Eden saying, you cannot come back in. That's the, that, that beginning of the, of the separation between man and God was the beginning. That, those were the glimpses of judgment, glimpses of, of hell. So as we dig into this, these definitions, that's kind of what, what we see. Now, um, just to dig in a little bit further to talk about the, the, how this is all kind of playing out, in answering the question, what is hell? What is hell then? It is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen to go our own way and be our own, the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. It is God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get to and into all of our lives. Again, do you see almost the Garden of Eden there? That's the, I want to be the captain of my own ship. This is a, and I think this is where we begin to, I think this begins to settle the heart to realize hell is not something that God's just kind of put in place to be mean. That hell is, a, is, is something that's, that's chosen. In fact, J.I. Packer writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Like if you read Scripture, almost every instance that you read is about the rejection of a relationship with God, the, the rebellion against God. It's about somebody being unrepentant and more concerned about themselves, real thinking and believing that life is all about me, that I am the centerpiece to the universe that I live in and nothing else matters. J.I. Packer says, hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. I think that gives us a, begins to give us a clear picture. C.S. Lewis says that, that that begins, there's a journey as, as humans in our selfishness. And we... He gets his brain wrapped around. C.S. Lewis, his writings on heaven and hell are fascinating. I don't 
they in some ways can depart when you read The Great Divorce. If, anybody, if you've ever read that, his, the journey um, of going from, from hell to, to just get a glimpse of heaven is fascinating to read. Um, but he, C.S. Lewis was so uncomfortable with the idea of hell, I think some of the theology gets lost, gets lost there. But he does say that people become, like there's this journey for the human being that has rebelled against God. In other words, every step away from the Garden of Eden, when I am choosing to be the captain of my own ship, when I am making that decision in my own selfishness, we become less and less human. In other words, less and less image bearers of who God intended us to be. And that makes sense to me. It's like the walk away from humanness. I'm becoming more selfish and less human, more selfish and less human. And he would say that is the, the slow walk and the slow choice moving towards hell. And when I think about things, the atrocities that you see on planet earth and people, unthinkable things that people do, you think, what do we say? That that's not even human. The fact that somebody could do that, that could, ab- could, do, could abuse that child, could, could kill in that manner, could walk in that way on planet earth. It's a, it's a movement, less and less truly human, less and less bearing the image of God, closer and closer to completely resigning yourself away from God and towards what we know as hell. So when we think about what is hell, separation from God, eternal, like there's no more God giving you like what it says in Romans 1. I'm going to give them over to their sinful passions. I'm going to let them be. It's instead of it just being a temporary giving over to the passions so that you can see that it's futile, it's a final giving over of your passions. You can have what you want. You don't want to be with me, who you were created to be with, then you're resigned to hell. So separation from God, eternal torment, essence of what hell is. And it's final. It's judgment. So why is hell important for our faith? I think, I think we're starting to feel a little bit of that. Why centrally, um, without it, there would be a problem. Why is it important for our faith? One, Jesus taught it more than any other biblical authors put together. That's probably a pretty good reason for us to study it, right? Why is it important to our faith? Jesus said it's very important for our faith, Right? Why? Because it gives a, one gives a very clear picture of God's holiness and our need. But it gives a clear picture of God's holiness. J.D. Uh, Greer says this, The doctrine of hell has fallen out of favor among many, but it's there for a reason. God tells us about hell to demonstrate to us the magnitude of his holiness. Hell is what hell is because the holiness of God is what it is. I love this because it, all of a sudden we see the extreme nature of, of hell. It starts to give us a picture of how impossible it is for us to be in the presence of a holy God as sinful people. The, the, the distance. I mean, we see some examples of this in Scripture. In Exodus 33, we see Moses had gotten close to God. He had conversations with God in, in several instances. He's on Mount Sinai and he says, I want to see your glory. I want to fully see it. And what does God say to him? Because he wants to see his face. God says, if you see my face, what will happen? You're going to die. You will surely die. You will be annihilated. It will be it for you. And he has mercy on Moses and, and appreciates the fact that Moses wants to see his glory. So he sticks him in the cleft of the rock. God passes by at an angle so he could see the, the, the back of him. And 
it was so glorious that Moses glowed. If you read that passage in Scripture, he, he like, a, like a light bulb, so much so that they couldn't look at him. They had to, like, y'all got to put something on Moses because he's coming down the mountain and he's, he's killing us. We, we go, and they put a veil on him. Moses would wear a veil. He would go meet with God and they would put a veil on him because he was shining so bright. Gives us an S, like a, a picture of his holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6, we've got one of the prophets says he had this privilege of being brought up into the throne room and seeing what it looks like. And he saw the train of, of God's robe in the temple. He saw the throne. He saw the, the, the living creatures with six arms singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in that instant, what does he say? He says, as soon as he sees it, experiences the presence of God in that way in the throne room. I'm done. I'm ruined. And it wasn't like, I'm dead. I mean, it was like, I'm going to die because I'm in the presence of something I, I know I shouldn't be. And what does he say? Instantly recognizes his brokenness. He instantly recognizes his sin. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I hang out with people. They all got unclean lips too. And in that instance, forgiveness comes. One of those creatures comes with a coal, burns his lips and says, you've been You've been a, your sin has been atoned for. And in his thankfulness, he says, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll preach to whoever you want me to preach to at that point. It's like this radical conversion he has just in the presence of God. But it's a representation of what? The distance, this massive distance between a holy God and a broken and sinful people. Without hell, we wouldn't have a clear picture. Just as Isaiah understood the gravity of his sin in the presence of the throne room. Our experience through the word of God of what hell is allows us to understand and begin to see our own sin. I mean, you can't repent if you don't know you've done anything wrong. So it gives us a clear picture of God's holiness and what? Our need. Why else is hell important for our faith? It makes sense of our innate sense of justice. We begin to understand Justice. And every one of us in here, we want justice. We are people that see things around in life and we want God to take care of them. I mean, I told a story in the first one. I'm not going to tell the whole thing because it's long. Um, it is funny, but we don't have time. But I had credit card fraud. Anybody ever had credit card fraud? Like done against you? I, I got so mad. Like I, it happened to me and it was a neighbor. I didn't I find out till way later that it was somebody that lived like two doors down from me in an apartment. I was young. I was uh, in grad school, 1998, and on a trip, and next thing you know, my, uh, checked my answer machine. Um, it's this little box. You have to hit the button, and people record things. You'll read about it in history. Um, and I, it was all, it was like within a quarter of a mile to half a mile of my house, all these banks, these like credit card statements of credit cards I never took out, was trying to buy a house at the time. My credit got absolutely jacked up. Couldn't buy the house. Lost it. I was infuriated. Um, long story short, caught the guy. I actually caught him, which was fantastic. And very much felt like justice. Got to see him in the back of the car. Um, and I didn't, I wanted to make faces like, um, but I didn't. Um, but, but we have an innate, so where does that come from? We, we, we as human beings, we want justice. I read an article uh, in Psychology Today, this 
doctor, she wrote, she said, I, there, there's an innate thing that I don't really understand. And she says, why do we sometimes want to believe in hell? And she starts to ask these questions in her rant. She says, do our species alone love justice? I mean, she's rhetorical. She's like, yes, we do. Is this because we who suffer as punishment or cruel fate hate seeing individuals we think worse than ourselves escape unscathed? I mean, don't we do that? And or because the human hearts, we revile harm done to animals, to oceans, to nations, to anyone. And or because we inhabit a scary world we cannot fix. Just so true. Cause and effect, crime and punishment. If life were like that, we would never need hell. It's true. We have, a, we have our representation of the criminal justice system, but it's... It's a far cry from actual justice because there's people in jail that probably shouldn't be there and there's plenty of people that should be there that aren't there because we don't know and we don't even have a sense of judgment. I even thought about the guy that, that committed credit card fraud and how mad, I was so glad seeing him in the back of the car just sitting there hmm, slumped over handcuffs. I was just like, yeah, you know? But what if? What if I told you and continue to tell you a story and said that, that guy was... He was left on, at, at, at age, he was seven, eight months old, was left on a doorstep. His mom abandoned him and went into the foster care system, was sexually abused for, for the next seven years. Got out. The only friends that he found were in the criminal element. And those are the people, that's where he got accepted. Those are the people that loved him. And one day he just found his kind of lane and he was really good at credit card fraud. Would we think differently about justice? Like in the moment, what do I think? I know justice. He deserves this. But what do I not know? And that's a false story. I don't know. The guy may deserve it. But God knows justice. God knows every story. He knows who deserves it, who doesn't. He knows when to extend mercy, when to not extend mercy. He knows when to bring forth wrath and not bring forth wrath. Surely I don't know. That guy in his purple BMW, I was so mad at him. But what if there's a story I don't know? What if there's something I don't understand? What if there's a repentant heart that I've not grasped? How can I trust that? I cannot, but I can trust the judge. And that's what the Apostle Paul's saying. He is trustworthy. He, God is just. You don't understand God's justice because you don't have all the facts. You can't have all the facts because you're not God, but we have this innate sense and there's almost a relief that God is who he is. A theologian, Miroslav Volv, he's a Yale theologian. He was very familiar because he was around during uh, um, the atrocities in the Balkans. He was Croatian. He said, if God were not angry and just, then he would not be worthy of worship. And when you've experienced atrocities like they had in the Balkans, where women, innocent, 85% of the people that died there in the atrocities there were women and children. It's just brutal. And to witness that, you want justice. And I think sometimes we think that love and justice can't coexist and love and wrath can't coexist. We think that they're different. Well, love and hate cannot coexist, but love and wrath absolutely can coexist. Because you can... You can truly be a loving person and at times be filled with wrath. Not despite your love, but because of your love. You get that? 
You can be a truly loving person, be filled with wrath, not despite your love as a wrong thing, but because of, of your love. I think about having children. Immediately, I'm disposed to wrath because if you touch my children, I don't care if you do CrossFit, if you know MMA, I will take the boots to you and I probably will win if you touch my child. I mean, you might, you might eventually take me out, but you're going to have some lumps. And that wrath is justified anger. It's justice. They do, they do coexist. God's wrath is because of his love. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, when we look at who he is and what he's done, it begins to make, make, make sense. And that's how we get to number three. How can God be loving and send people to hell? Well, the, the first response to that, God, in a sense, doesn't send anyone to hell, nor does he desire that anyone goes. That's why we interpret scripture with scripture when we want to interpret what God, how God thinks and how God feels about anything. First Timothy 2.3, it says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants, listen to this superlative, He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should receive repentance. That's God's heart for you and for me. Man rebels and rejects God. God relentlessly pursues. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, a man can't be taken to hell or sent to hell. He can only get there by his own steam. There's no one that's going to be in hell that doesn't deserve it. Because in my mind, I think that's where I, I get in trouble when I think about hell. I'm thinking, what about all the innocent people that just didn't know? Or how, how did they, you know, there might be a whole ton of people that are going to be consigned to hell that don't deserve it. No one innocent will be in hell. This is where we trust that God is good. That God knows, that he knows the heart of men and women. That things that we don't know, God knows. When I think about hell, I, I mean, get in your mind, think of the worst people. Those are the people in hell. By God's grace, some of them might repent and be in heaven. But when you think about evil, when you think about innocence, God is not sending innocent people to hell. He's sending people that deserve it. And the crazy thing is when we read scripture, all of us deserve it, Right? And this is how we know that God is good. Because we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Hell magnifies God's grace. We see Jesus in the cross. We see God's wrath. We see God's mercy. We see God's justice. And we see God's grace. All of them coexisting right here at the cross of Jesus Christ. The wrath that you deserve goes towards Jesus, his, his one and only son. What would be the point of the cross without hell? Aaron Walsh said that between gatherings. Like, what would be the point of the cross? Why would we celebrate? Why do we celebrate blood mingled down? Why are those the songs that we sing so loudly? Because in the back of our subconscious mind, we know that we were saved from something, right? From the separation of the God that we belong to be with. Justice and mercy are all displayed on this criminal's cross. 
You know, we want to avoid the difficult conversations, I think, in, in our day. And why can't we just all get along? You know, why do we have to talk about hell? I invited a friend today. I'm kidding. But the, the beauty of today really is the goodness of God. If, if you're doubting that, if we think about hell, we think about this idea of outer darkness, we think about separation from God, the, the willful rebellion, the continual walking that leads somebody to their destruction, their eternal destruction and God's justice. To wrap my mind back around and, and, and wonder, is God really good? I just look at the cross. That he, that he would give up his one and only son how would, how would he not graciously give us all things, he says in Romans 8. We look at the cross, we're like, he, he, he would give me anything. If he would give me that, then he would give me anything because he's good. And there is an urgency to it. I had a conversation with a friend of mine that didn't, uh, that just kind of left church right during COVID and ne never came back. Just said, ah, people are just, it's all about argument. It's all about, you know, this theology, that theology, this religion, that religion, who's right, who's wrong. Why can't, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in the Jesus camp, but I don't want to force it on anybody. I just want people to be able to do what they want to do, behave how they want to. If, if this is what makes them happy, then why would I want to intervene? Why would I want to come with my, my truth? Let them live their truth. Isn't that popular? And I said, well, yeah. I said, well, let's, let's just have that conversation. So you've got a friend couple friends. They're all hanging out. They, they love hanging out together. They believe the same thing. They're living their truth and they're headed in that direction. They're headed towards a cliff. And at the end of the cliff, they're going to fall and they're going to die. They're headed in that direction. And, you, and you're just like watching them cruise. You're like, they're enjoying themselves. Why would I want to intervene? Let them, let them just live their lives and do what they want. They're having a good old time, you know? They think that's the beach. They're headed to the ocean, you know? I know that it's a cliff and they're gonna die, but I, <laughs> I don't wanna stop them, you know? Let them do their thing. The most loving thing that you could do, if you really love them and you really believe you've got the truth is to tell them, stand in their way, jump in their way. Say, hey! No, you think that's the beach and the ocean. That's a cliff and you're going to die. And as followers of Jesus, as a, as a pastor, somebody that, that I believe with everything that I am, that Jesus saves, that he rescues, that he redeems, that the cross of Jesus Christ, putting your faith in Jesus is the most important thing you will ever do. That the thing that you need most, the thing that will change the way that you experience life, that, that nagging thing that's inside all of us that says nothing will satisfy this. No, no, not, a, not any amount of money, not any relationship, not being famous, not being awesome at something. I've tried all those things. Nothing satisfies it. I can tell you what does. And his name is Jesus. And the reason is because you were you were. You were built for it. You were made to worship him. You were made to glorify him. You were made to be in relationship with him. And passages like these, sermons like these, lead us to one conclusion. And really, it's an invitation to know him. And if you don't, 
don't mean to be the, the pastor of the 70s and 80s, but don't, don't walk out of here not knowing him. He's got you here because he loves you. He's got you listening to these very words because he loves you. And he's a relentless pursuer of you. Let's stand. God, we love you. We thank you for your word that you don't give us the easy way out, um, but you lead us to the truth. You're so good. God, I, I pray that you open the, the, the eyes of our heart, open spiritual eyes in this room, even right now, in Jesus' name.